Good morning. morning. And let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do give you our thanks and thank you that the surgery went well for Beverly this week, but there's been many other blessings we've all experienced this week and we thank you for your watch care and your your involvement in our lives. We thank you for the truth about your character and the way you run your universe. We ask that you will be with us this morning, that our hearts will draw near to you as we study your word. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So in our lesson, we're doing lesson number seven in the quarterly Jeremiah, and the, and the title is The Crisis Continues. And the memory text is out of Jeremiah 9.24 from the New King James. It says, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. What do you understand the text is saying? Does it resonate with an end-time message for an end-time people. Notice, but let him who glories glory in this. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Did your, did your mind connect those two texts when you read that? And if so, what, what is the insight Jeremiah is giving to the end-time message about glorying and glorifying God? What is the basis of our glories, if you will? There you go, the, char- the, the character of God. So our knowledge of God, can a person actually glorify God if they don't know him? You know, as I've said before, in this world, if you look around the world, there's nothing much more dangerous in this world than somebody on a mission for God who doesn't know him. Think about the, the real awful things that happen in the world. Yeah. So will this be an end time issue? This idea of glory? Well, this is um, out of the SD Bible commentary on the memory passage, Jeremiah 9.24. And it says, The truly wise ascribe praise to God alone, never to self. The knowledge of God is the only true ground for glorying. The man, that man alone is truly wise, in whose heart such knowledge is treasured, for it is eternal life. This knowledge has an intellectual aspect involving the understanding. Man's relationship to God has a reasonable and intelligent basis. It has no blind discipleship. Man is to serve God with all the mind. But knowing God goes beyond merely theoretical understanding. It is an experimental knowledge. It is practical. Wow, I was thinking, that is quite good. Wasn't that good? Yeah. Did you notice it was the integrative approach there? That we have to have a reason, we have to reason, we have to understand the evidences for it. But we have to go beyond that, we have to experience it, it has to be practical, it has to apply to our life, it has to work in the world around us. Do you understand that that is describing design law, not imposed law? So with this idea in mind, let's unpack the further descriptors in the lesson, where it says that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness... Judgment and righteousness on the earth. What do you understand when you think about God, this descriptor loving kindness to be describing? I think that um, it says in the earth. And I like the word exercising. It's not that just he is loving kindness. He is love as we all think of him. He is righteousness. But that he's really using it. He's exercising it in the earth. Uh, in in all, every way you'll let him do it. If you let him fill you with your Holy Spirit, you then will become uh, filled with loving kindness towards all around you, and filled with uh, righteousness. And that and the exercise part was interesting to me when you were reading this 
Just because he's not just that, he actually is using his... Oh, I love that. I love this insight that you just shared. Loving kindness, exercising in the earth. Yes, you, you, you pointed us to the direction of if we light him in our lives, but it's bigger than that even, isn't it? Exercising in the earth. Who's sustaining the earth constantly? Yeah, who is uh, bringing the sunshine and the rain constantly? And this is the principle of giving, which he's exercising his love, sustaining constantly by the outpouring of his energies to sustain and to give of himself constantly. So the exercising of love, it's uh, the song by uh, Michael W. Smith, Love Isn't Love Until You Give It Away. Right? It, it, and, it, and so he's constantly giving of himself uh, to sustaining. And that's a very good insight. Thank you. What do you think about this idea about judgment? When you hear that word, what is it referring to? Doing what's right because it's right. I like where you're going with that. Doing what's right because it's right. So it's, it's not simply a judicial... When we read the word judgment, how conditioned are we to hear a judicial process? A judge sitting over and judging. And, and that's how it's often read because we come with certain assumptions. I will tell you um, that the same exact Hebrew word, which is mishpat, is uh, used in... Uh, Jeremiah 5.4, and I'm going to read Jeremiah 5.4 from the New King James, the good news, the New Revised Standard. So you hear this word judgment um, and how it's translated in different versions. Here's the New King James. Therefore I said, surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. There's that word judgment. Same word as in, in the memory text. Here's the good news. Then I thought, these are only the poor and ignorant. They behave foolishly. They do not know their God, what their God requires, what the Lord wants them to do. And the New, Rev- New Revised Standard. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the law of their God. Now, does that sound like a judicial process in these other versions? No, it sounds more like a method, a way of doing business, how things are designed to work, the, the protocols upon which reality function which is truly what is being described here. It's not a judicial process at all. But so many people coming with that preconceived idea, they read words like this, they take their proof text, and they say, see, there's judgment, there's so much legal language, and I get this all the time from people. There's so much legal language in the Bible. How do you explain the legal language? Because the people who translated it had legal preconceived ideas when they translated it. And thus they take words that can mean judgment, but they can also mean other things, and they put the judicial slant on the translation. Tim, there's also the aspect of uh, pursuing the understanding that we have in this class of the consequences being sure and the consequences being enforced, essentially. Sure. In this earth, human beings can avoid the consequences up until the point that they are effectively opposed by equal and opposite forces, so to speak. They can avoid the consequences of arbitrary rule breaking, but not the consequences of breaking design law. So if we went 40 in the 30 zone, we can avoid consequences unless a, a, a ruling authority opposes us and, 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 and we end up in this room paying our ticket, right? I'm also referring to the idea that, for instance, if you have enough money and if you have enough uh, the genetic type things, you know, if, if you can pick your stem cells, you might be able to overcome some of the consequences of your poor choices in health-wise as well. 
Yeah, but you, but you're not avoid you're not avoiding the consequence. You're just you're just dealing with the consequence through a stem cell application that somebody else may not be able to afford. But you still got a consequence you're addressing. You're putting off the consequence, or you're addressing it with various means and methods that you wouldn't have to address. You wouldn't have to spend the money. You wouldn't have to go through the procedure, so forth. So there's still a consequence. You see, when I think of judgment, I think of like when you grow older. Hopefully, you get you gain good judgment. And you hope your kids that you raise will gain good judgment when they come up with ways of looking at things they develop through experience or education or whatever, a a good judgment when when opportunities come to them. And and so when I think of judgment, I think of decision making, or as you put it, diagnosing correctly the situation and how to deal with it. This is another great insight. So God is exercising good judgment in other words, he is assessing things wisely, making accurate diagnoses, making proper therapeutic interventions, using good judgment in judicial use, judicious use, not judicial, judicious use of his powers in order for healing and restoring, not judicially to enforce arbitrary laws or rules. Yes? Doesn't God have to make judgments and exercise them continually if his spirit is going to bring you to repentance? Yeah, judgments as in judgments of wisdom, judgments of what's best in this circumstance, but not judicial judgments. Well, the law says, and I've got, let me, let me check to the code book here and have an, ah, okay, code 37, oh, this is what is required to be enforced, I'm the judge going to enforce that. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't know what to convict you of unless God knew where you stood on that. He, he, t- he knows your heart. He's yes, which is, which is based on evidence, facts, reality, the situation as it actually is. Just like a doctor makes a judgment based on what is actually in your liver, if there's a tumor in your liver, and makes an intervention based on the objective reality of what the biopsy shows. So there's judgments being made, but it's based on reality, not based on a rule book. Right. But the, uh, when it says exercise? Yes. I see that in a way of him exercising judgment and bringing healing at the same time. He's convicting you and giving you an Oh, yeah, I like that aspect of it. Yes, the Holy Spirit exercising judgment or conviction in the hearts of men. That's good. Yes. I think he shines a light on, you know, on you. So you can either go, like, harden your heart against the light or you can go and soften it so you improve. No, absolutely. Well said. That's exactly right as well, that there's the, he's the source of light and truth and then leaves us free to respond to that. So then the idea of righteousness, the third uh, descriptor means simply doing what's right, doing the right thing, and which is in harmony always with the character of love. So out of the message then, this is the message version of our memory text that we read to begin the class. If you brag, brag of this and this only, that you understand and know me, I'm God and I act in loyal love. I do what's right and set things right and fair and delight in those who do the same. These are my trademarks, God's decree. Don't you like that? Wasn't that nice? Yeah, it has a completely different feel to it, doesn't it? Sounds, it doesn't have that judicial feel that we often get under that oppressive fear-based kind of process. The lesson, in the second paragraph, it says, Imagine what would have happened if the people had listened to Jeremiah and had accepted the prophet's warning. If they had listened, if the people, the kings, the leaders, had humbled themselves before God, the terrible crisis would not have come. The chance for repentance was before them. Even after they had done so much wrong, so much evil, the door to redemption and salvation had not closed. The door stood open. They simply refused to walk through it. So what is it that closes the door of salvation? 
Our calloused ears. Our calloused ears, meaning? You know, it's, it's not, you know when we played um, hide and seek as a kid? You know, you would have this, uh, you know, um, ready or not, here I come. Is that God in heaven counting to a certain number? When he hits that number in the chronological heavenly clock, ready or not, here I come. Is that how we often portray it? Time's up, probation is closed, you missed your chance, ready or not, here I come. Is that what shuts the door? He meets, meets his, his cosmic clock, hits a certain point. Or is it what you're saying, that events on earth unfold in a certain way, that people, the people on earth, are faced with a decision. And the decisions they make either open their heart for transformation and healing, or harden their heart, where no amount of truth and love will have any more impact on them. Thus, they close their own hearts to truth and love. Sunday's lesson. Tim, yeah. The lesson accurately stated it. The door was open. They refused to walk through it. Yep. You know, I, I immediately thought to the analogy of the, when the Holy City comes down, the gates are open, but the wicked refuse to walk through them. Uh, yeah, that's nice. Uh, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, In Jeremiah 9, the prophet began his lamentation because he saw the inevitable catastrophe coming to his own people. God pronounced judgment over Jerusalem. And when God says something, he does it. What, What they would face wasn't something fortuitous, not just one of those terrible, inexplicable things that happens from time to time. No, they would. what they would face was going to be the direct judgment of God. And it was this realization that was causing Jeremiah such sorrow. Let's first examine the assertions of the quarterly. The first assertion here is, when God says something, he does it. Is this an absolute truth? Or does God say something, but if circumstances change, God adapts and changes? Did God say to Jonah that he was going to destroy Nineveh? And did Jonah take that message and tell the Ninevites? Was there built into the message a caveat that would avert the action? Was there? If you don't repent? Did God tell Moses he was going to destroy Israel and start over with him? Was there a caveat built into that message? Moses, if you plead with me, I won't do it. But if you don't plead with me, I'm going to destroy these people. There was no caveat built in. God said it. But did he do it? He didn't do it. Like that, and, and like Abraham, there was negotiating <laughs> that went on. A lot of negotiating. He came. You know, if you will, you will you destroy these people if there's only forty? How about thirty? What about twenty-five? <laughs> you know, you got down to ten, and uh, so you sort of in a, a, I think you're reasonable. Can I can I negotiate with you? And so I mean, there's several instances where. You know, Moses said, don't kill these people, take me instead, basically. And God said, you know, whoever's bad is going to get it, whoever isn't. So, so the question, first off, when God says something, does that mean he always does exactly what he says? No, and that's actually why Jonah didn't want to go, because he said you're going to get uh, your soft heart, and you're going to, to change your mind if they change, and you'll save them, and then I'll look bad. So that's why I didn't want to go. Exactly. So on the face value, the way they put this isn't quite right. And in fact, when you put it this way, it makes God out to be rigid, arbitrary, uncompromising. But let's be fair to the authors, because what I think they're trying to say is that they're trying to say, and I think in a clumsy way, that God is reliable, 
God is dependable. God is constant. God is predictable. A God who never changes. A God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The problem that they have, though, is that they're focusing on behavior or an action rather than focus on character and method. You see, God is always love. His character never changes. But the action that love takes does change depending on the circumstance. A parent who loves their child, depending on the need, may hold the child and rock the child and comfort the child and caress the child or play with the child. But they also may discipline the child, may pop the child's bottom or put the child in time out or something. Depending on the need, love does different things. And, 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 fo- and focusing on a behavior rather than focusing on character traps one. So God in love, you've, if you look at the history of the Old Testament, God is always acting to redeem. So sometimes he says these strong words, but the words are what the individuals need to hear. So in, in uh, 1 Kings 22, the prophet Micaiah goes to Ahab and says that the Lord sent lying spirits into the mouth of his prophets to trick him into going to battle against Ramoth Gilead and his death. But we know the Lord doesn't send lying prophets. Those are the words that Ahab, who's a Baal worshiper, needs to hear to understand that the message he got from those other prophets was false and a lie. It was an act to try and save Ahab from going to war and protecting his life. It was still an act of love and kindness. But it was worded in a way that Ahab would recognize the, the veracity of it. And in the case of Moses, my view of Moses, of course you know, is that he, was, he knew Moses' heart. He knew what was happening. There was a great controversy going on. Uh, there, uh, there were, as you get in the book of Job, there was a behind-the-scenes action where Satan was taunting the angels in heaven and, and saying, look at these people. They just saw the ten plagues of Egypt and walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And, and here they are, 40 days later, worshiping a golden calf. The, the uh, Lord is deceiving you. These people are on my side. They can't be saved. They can't be redeemed. And so Christ says to, to the angels, watch this, guys. And remember, what I'm about to show you, Moses... Forty years ago, he murdered an overseer. But watch what happens now. And he goes to Moses, sounding angry at the people. I'm going to start over with you. And Moses not only begs for the people, but he offers his life to save the people. And the Lord looks at the angel and said, See, I told you. If you trust me, all those who trust me, I will restore back to my ways of love. It works. My methods work. Yes. Is it possible that a Nineveh in parallel universe, 40 days in advance, was destroyed and so this Nineveh was warned to avert that destruction. Yeah, I, I don't have any um, evidence of parallel universes being in existence. Um, so um, I, I would have to say, based on the evidence that we have, no. Um, is it possible that one in one's imagination could imagine something like that happening if they don't repent? Sure. Um, but I don't see that as a reality in some alternate universe. My view of the general conflict is after Adam, Adam and Eve sinned, the human race is deviant from God's design and they're in a terminal condition. Without divine intervention, without Christ coming to earth and achieving his mission on earth, the species human would be lost, eternally dead. So in Genesis 3, God says to the serpent, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, you're going to bruise his heel. So the devil knows that the Son of God is coming to undo what he's done to this human race. Satan begins the process of trying to obstruct that. And, and there's one methodology, one stratagem, that if he achieves it, he defeats Christ's ability to save mankind. And that is, if he gets every human heart on earth to permanently harden themselves against God, there is no avenue through which Messiah is going to come. Messiah is not going to be born to a woman like Jezebel. He's not going to force a woman against her will to carry the Son of God. It had to have a, a willing, righteous host in order to be the mother of Jesus. Well, in Genesis 6, at the time of the flood, it says there was only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Only one. Think about that. 
of the whole population of the earth, there's only one person still that's working with God. Everybody else is hardened, beyond, beyond reach. And, that's, and so if you look, when did the flood come? When there was only one man. The very, how, how long did God wait to act? And what was his action? To punish sin? No, to keep open avenue from the Messiah. After that, we have the word, the, the seed of the woman isn't coming from any group of people on the earth. We've narrowed it now. We're, the seed of the woman is coming from this one family. Satan doesn't have to direct his actions against the entire world anymore to shut the avenue. He just has to, sh- to harden the hearts of everyone in this family now. And if he d- uh, does that or destroy everyone in this family, then there's no avenue for Messiah. Because this is now, he has you know, the insight, promise from Abraham, that this is where it's coming. And without Sodom, Gomorrah, and the five cities, so there are seven cities like this that were completely corrupt, without them on the earth, how close did Israel come to not making it through to Messiah? Ten of the tribes are gone by the time Christ came. They're already gone. Ten gone. Ten out of twelve gone. And the two that were left were so corrupt by the time he came that it almost... So my view is that Christ, or God from heaven, did an excision, if you will, of a necrotic lesion on earth and excised the minimum uh, um, necrotic area necessary to sustain an avenue for which Messiah would come. And that's what happened. Yes. It's also an act of mercy because when you read Leviticus 18 and see the kind of sexual abuse that was taking place at that time, and uh, God says, the cry of her is come up to me. Yes. So there may have been very young, innocent people in that city. I'm not saying they're innocent. I don't know. But that the suffering was so great. And if we understand how sin works, it wasn't just the innocents that were being exploited. The abusers and exploiters were searing their conscience, warping their carrots, hardening their hearts. There's the torment of their... Yes, this is... And you read that in James, where it talks about Lot, the righteous man, was tortured every day in his soul with the evil going on around him. Or is that Jude? Yeah, but there... I think it's Jude. Uh, the righteous... Um, righteous Lot. The righteous Lot was being tormented in his soul by seeing this. So I, again... I, this was not an act of punishment, it was an act of mercy for those involved to keep open the avenue for which Messiah would come. And so, then, yes. Along with the, what Rachel said, yes. um, Genesis 6 has always meant a lot to me when it said, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Along the same line, yeah. he, he was experiencing or uh, the, whole, the pain of the entire world like we do, like he does today. And so the problem comes when we view these passages through the lens of human law constructs, that God's law works like our laws. Therefore, we see God working to punish sin rather than understanding God is working to heal and restore his creation. So how how does the lesson make God's judgments sound? Often like punishments inflicted. Here's the, uh, notice the huge description now from what the, the lesson said to the description out of the book Education, which is in the next paragraph in your lesson. So here's out of the book Education. The cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that, from its very inception, sin is brought to the heart of God. What we're just reading. Every departure from right, every deed of cruelty, every failure of humanity to reach its ideal brings grief to him. When there came upon Israel the calamities that were the sure result of separation from God, notice the reason it's happening, subjugation by their enemies, cruelty and death, it is said his soul was grieved for the misery of Israel. Notice why their, their suffering came. 
Not because God is inflicting it, but because by their choices they're separating from him and the results are subjugation, slavery, and death. Bottom pink section says, what does the cross tell us about the loving kindness, justice, and righteousness of God? Have you got eternity? Everything. Pardon? Have you got eternity? Yeah, have you got eternity, right, because that's what we'll study for all eternity. Uh, Obviously, for God so loved the world that he gave. It reveals the giving, self-sacrificial heart of God. Justice. What is justice? Define it. Human law lens? What's justice under the human law lens? Whether we bring our enemies to justice or justice to our enemies, justice will be done. Remember George Bush after 9-11? Retribution. Retribution. Making someone pay. You watch it on the TV cop shows all the time. Help us bring your brother's murderer to justice. What, what are we trying to do there? We want to make, punish them. So justice under the human model is always accountability and infliction of punishment. How much do we project that into God's government that justice is God having a judgment one day and inflicting punishment for people for breaking the rules? It's a distortion. But in today's world, when we do inflict punishment using worldly government, partly it's to get even with them for what they did, I guess, but partly it's to prevent them from doing more evil to other people. So sometimes justice, I think, calls for, and in several of these instances we've been talking about, prevention. <laughs> you know, a pound of, what an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If, if they've already demonstrated a nature that's... that's uh, prowling and prey-like and and vengeful on other people, they need to be kept away from other people. Now you're showing us a higher level of understanding of what the right thing to do is, and the right thing to do is not only protect the innocents, but to protect the evildoer from searing their own conscience, warping their own character, hardening their own hearts further, because every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, hardening them. So there is a, a more mature level of looking at it, but that's not how the human heart typically looks at it. Typically, there's a retribution aspect that's wanted, and we call it justice. It's fair. They've, they've done wrong. We must punish this. This is like level one and two moral development. But God's justice is always doing what's right. And what is the right thing to do? If you walk in, and you know the metaphor, but I think it's very powerful. If you walk in on somebody who's just hung themselves, but they're not dead, and they're hanging from the rope, breaking the law of respiration. They're a lawbreaker. What's the right, just action for you to take? It's not judicial. It's not punitive. It's to deliver and to save. Unless you see God's justice, he sees every one of us dangling at that rope because of Adam's decision. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and he's working through Christ to put us back in harmony at one minute. Reconciliation, put us back in harmony with him to save and to heal. That's the right thing to do. Let's deliver those people. That's justice. Righteousness, of course, the perfection of God's character and methods lived out by Christ. So Monday's lesson, let's jump to Monday's lesson. There's a couple really powerful things in the lesson we're going to see. First paragraph, it says, as we have seen already, God's people had been called out of, out to be different from the nations around them and were all steeped in pagan idolatry and false teachings. So many of the warnings in the first five books of Moses were especially against following the practices of their neighbors. Instead, the Israelites were to be witnesses to the world of the truth about the Lord as creator and redeemer. Unfortunately, so much of the Old Testament history is the story of how they were often lured into the very practices they were warned against. The lesson talks about them being steeped in paganism, idolatry, and false teachings. Who were these people that were being steeped this way? These were God's chosen, i.e. the church of the day. They were his people with the prophetic messages to take the gospel message to the world, but they were steeped in pagan practices, idolatry, and false teachings. What about the church today? 
Christianity today, God's vehicle on earth to take the gospel to the world. Is it steeped in pagan concepts, false God concepts, and idolatry? Are we steeped that way? This is out of a book, Faith I Live By, written by Ellen White, and it says, Thousands have a false conception of God and his attributes. They are as verily serving a false God as were the servants of Baal. Talking about Christians today. Possible? What's that look like? What are the elements that have been accepted by Christians that actually cause Christians to teach false views of God and lead people into paganism? I've listed some elements. I want to go through those with you. Number one element, you know what's going to be. God's law is imposed. That God's must inflict punishment requires appeasement. I was speaking yesterday to a really good Christian person. I, I really admire, respect, and enjoy. Who teaches, uh, he's a professor who teaches theology. And um, I, I view him like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, one of the good guys, but still struggling with questions that haven't been fully answered yet. And as we talked yesterday, we talked about the ransom metaphor, and he told me that the ransom means that Satan had legal claims to planet Earth, and a payment had to be made to purchase Earth back, and that payment was made to God to purchase Earth back from the claims of Satan when Adam sinned. What's the text for that? Yeah. This is, but this, this is common teaching under ransom metaphor, that Christ had to pay some penalty because Satan had some legal claim to Earth. It's all predicated on a false understanding of reality. Let me read to you out of a book called Desire of Ages, page 129, about the claim of Satan. Satan's, Satan's dominion was wrested from Adam, but Adam was the vicegerent of, of the creator. His was not an independent rule. The earth is God's, and he has committed all things to his son. Adam was to reign subject to Christ. When Adam betrayed his sovereignty into Satan's hands, Christ still remained the rightful king. Okay? If... It, if Christ is still the rightful king, then does anything legal have to be done to get him back into this rightful position? No. This whole idea of ransom being paid to give Christ legal right to the earth again is based on a complete falsehood, Satan's view. Satan claims to be the ruler of earth. He claims it. Just because he claims it, it doesn't make it so. Christ is always the ruler of earth. Always has been. Yes? The, the question I, that really kind of got me into this whole mindset was simply... Who was the ransom paid to? And that just put me on a track that made me realize that I didn't have an answer to it until I realized the healing message. And that's what I asked him, and he said it was paid to God, and I said that's exactly what all pagan religions teach, that the God of the universe, or the God that you worship, requires some payment of some kind. That's the basis of paganism. This is a pagan God construct. And it's embedded right into every Christian denomination. So what is the ransom metaphor? How do we understand, I, I pointed out, when you talk metaphor, guys, all metaphor, in order to be metaphor, must point to some cosmic reality. If there is no reality behind the metaphor, then it's no longer metaphor, it's fantasy. It's only metaphor if it's connected to a reality. And so what is the reality to which it points? And one of the other things you'll run into, and be prepared for this argument for those who hold the legal view, is they will say, we have no problem with the healing metaphor. The Bible is rich in many metaphors of the atonement. The healing metaphor is one of them. And if you, and if you go down that trail, you've just lost the argument because it's a lie. The healing presentation is not metaphor. It's reality. All the other metaphors point to that. When the Bible says this mortal will put on immortality, this corruption will put on incorruption, the earth will be made new, you get a new heart and a right spirit, you get the divine, become partakers of the divine nature, you get recreated in the image of Christ, 
this is not metaphor. That's the reality. Are we saying that's only metaphor? It doesn't really happen. No, that's real. That's the real thing. All the legal stuff is metaphor. It's not real. It's just trying to teach you the real stuff. So what's the ransom metaphor? Ransom is the price necessary to free someone in bondage. Question, what holds human beings in bondage? Two things. Lies that we believe and our carnal natures. We're in bondage to those two things. So what is it that sets us free? John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he, one of the prices necessary to pay was the price of revealing the truth about his character at the cross. He reveals he is all-powerful, but he never uses his power to protect himself. He's not selfish. He can be trusted with the power. You know the saying, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely? Christ proved that with him that's not true. He had absolute power, but he would rather let his creatures kill him than use his power to stop them. So the truth about God's character is revealed. But the other thing we need, we need a new nature, a new heart and right spirit. We can't produce that. Christ came in human form and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. Thus we become partakers of the divine nature achieved through Christ. So the price necessary to free us, truth and a new nature, who is the price paid to? Let's take the word paid out, substitute a synonym. Who is the price provided to? To you and to me. That's who gets the ransom price. It's us. We partake the truth. We partake the new nature because our situation and condition required it. There's no legal aspect to this at all. That's all artifact based on a false law construct. Two, what another... So the imposed law construct. Second thing that that causes Christians to teach paganism is the pursuit of governmental support for religious institutions and beliefs. Remember Satan? What was his temptation of Jesus, the third temptation? Bow down to me and I will give you all the supports of all these governments of the earth. Just worship me and all the supports of all these governments will be yours. Am I making that up or did that happen? This is one of Satan's strategies. And how many of our institutions go to the trough of governmental support to be supported by the state? To seek the state, to put laws in place, to promote the beliefs as we believe the society should function. Let's get the right judges. Let's get the right presidents. Let's get the right laws passed so we can legislate. And what method now is being used? I'm going to tell you guys this. You can't win God's cause by practicing Satan's methods. Even if you've got the right facts. So pick a doctrine. Baptism. Whichever way you believe it. Let's say your way is the correct way from Scripture. You can't win people by legislating and coercing people to be baptized under the penalty of threats and penalties. We convert people. We do not coerce people. Coercion is always from Satan's government. But you watch the churches seek coercive pressure. And then, when the churches are tempted not not simply to join with and practice those methods in the state and those around them, but when the churches operate like those governments, even though they promote separation of church and state, they fall into this trap if they teach that God's law operates like man's law. So they're saying that God runs his universe the same way, so they're aligning God's government with earthly governments in their doctrinal teaching. Again, going back to the imposed law. The imposed law. The linchpin. That is the linchpin. Third, third thing. 
And I found this quote in the book, The Great Controversy, on uh, page 549. It says, The theory of immortality of the soul is one of those false doctrines that Rome, barring from paganism, incorporated into the religions of Christendom. Now, how does immortality of the soul lead to pagan God concepts? First, there is a lie told in Eden, you will not surely die. And immortality of the soul says, well, Satan was right. God was wrong. God said you'll die. Satan said you won't. Well, Satan's right. We've got to side with him. Number one, you're already down the wrong track. Number two, what kind of God does it make God out to be once you accept that lie? Think it through with me. If immortality of the soul is true, there's some aspect of human beings that can never die, there are consequences to the kind of God you worship. One, he is one of the following. He's either naive, meaning he doesn't have much forethought. He doesn't take things into consideration. He didn't anticipate very well that an immortal being would rebel, and therefore he has these immortal creatures that will be in rebellion and spend all eternity in suffering and torment and flames. He, he, didn't, he didn't want it to happen. He's got a kind and loving heart. He's just a little bumbling and a little short-sighted and naive. That, that, that's, and some people teach this view. He didn't mean it. He's sorry. Or he's incapable. He actually didn't have the ability to know and didn't use the He had the ability, he's naive, but he didn't use it. He doesn't have the ability, he couldn't know, he just took a chance. Or he's cruel and sadistic. He did know the future, and he did know they would rebel, but he gave them immortality anyway, knowing that some people might live just 20 years on earth, or less, 15 years on earth, and never accept him as savior, but they'll spend eternity, billions and billions and billions of eons of time being tormented for all eternity. What kind of a being do we worship if this is true? Thus, the doctrine of immortality of the soul causes people to view God as something other than love, which is pagan. It's idolatry. This is what it leads to. And then four, any theology that requires appeasement, propitiation, or any action be taken to influence or persuade or enable or permit God to forgive and save or not lash out with judgment and punishment. But... I'm going to read a quote to you, a uh, couple of quotes out of, uh, first one's out of Desire of Ages, page 115. With intense interest, Satan watched the sacrifices offered by Adam and his sons. In these ceremonies, he discerned a symbol of communion between earth and heaven. He, Satan, set himself to intercept this communion. He misrepresented God and misrepresented the rights that pointed to the Savior. Men were led to fear God as one who delighted in their destruction. The sacrifices that should have revealed his love were offered only to appease his wrath. Wow. Isn't that interesting? The sacrifices were never appeasements. They were demonstrations of self-sacrificial love, but we missed it. This is out of Prophets and Kings 124. Determined to keep the people in deception, the priests of Baal continued to offer sacrifices to their gods and to call upon them night and day to refresh the earth. With costly offerings, the priests attempted to appease the anger of their gods. This is paganism at its core. And then speaking of the Dark Ages, um, about uh, Christians in the Dark Ages, this is out of uh, Great Controversy, page 56. They were taught not only to look to the Pope as their mediator, but to trust the works of their, of their own to atone for sin. Long pilgrimages, acts of penance, the worship of relics, the erection of churches, shrines and altars, the payment of large sums to the church. These and many similar acts were enjoined to appease the wrath of God or to secure his favor, as if God were like men, to be angered at trifles or pacified by gifts or acts or penance. And of course, many Protestant Christians come along and say, oh no, nothing you could do could appease him. Uh, the only thing he's waiting for, he's waiting for the blood of his son. And, if he, and he has to have the blood 
blood of his son offered to him. And if he doesn't get the blood of his son, then he won't be appeased and he'll be mad and it'll punish you. And, and they don't see that they're still presenting an angry God who must be appeased. It's still paganism. That's the root of every pagan system. Tuesday's lesson. Second paragraph. It says, the inhabitants, of, the inhabitants of Judah were all undeserving, yet God would not give them up. By them, his name was to be exalted among the heathen. Many who were wholly uh, unacquainted with his attributes were yet to behold the glory of the divine character. Undeserving. What does, what does it not mean? Does it mean that uh, they didn't possess, they didn't, uh, th- they were, have no value in and of themselves that God cared enough about them to save them? They were not God's children. Does it mean that? They were not God's children? It means they didn't possess, here's what it does mean, it, they didn't possess healthiness of character or soul or spirit or goodness in and of themselves to be able to live in God's uh, universe. That's all it means. They didn't possess within themselves harmony with God's design. It doesn't mean they were worthless worms. It does not mean uh, that if they were loyal, observed his laws, kept his rules, that they would then be deserving. If they worked really hard, then they would earn merit and, and be deserving. No, it doesn't mean any of that. So his last paragraph states, Old Testament, New Testament, in the end, the message of God is the same to all of us. We are sinners, we have done wrong, we deserve punishment. It's in the quarterly. Hmm. I can't say it more emphatically. This is paganism. It's idolatry. It's infection of the beastly system under the idea that you break rules, rules must inflict punishment. However, to be gracious to those who write this, there are statements in some places that can be construed to teach this if we read it in isolation. So I'm going to read out of a book called, and and notice the title of this book because I think it's quite apropos. Um, This is written by Ellen White. The book title is called Darkness Before Dawn. (laughs) So we will read the darkness before dawn. In other words, misunderstanding before enlightenment is another way to say that. But here's what is written in this book. And then we will unpack through the same author's writing what this actually means. God has given his word decisive evidence that he will punish the transgressions of his law. Those who flatter themselves that he is too merciful to execute justice upon the sinner have only to look at the cross of Calvary. The death of the spotless Son of God testifies the wages of sin is death, that every violation of God's law must receive its just retribution. Christ, the sinless, became sin for man. He bore the guilt of transgression and the hiding of the Father's face until his heart was broken and his life was crushed out. All this sacrifice was made that sinners might be redeemed. In no other way could men be set free from the penalty of sin. And every soul that refuses to become a partaker of the atonement, provided at such cost, must bear in his own person the guilt and punishment of transgression. Do you see why people can come to this idea that God must punish sin with statements like this? The problem is, again, you can't win God's cause with Satan's methods. So you have to say, okay, if we're going to use this language, what are God's methods? How does he do this? Not, not do we just hear those words and immediately interpret all those words through the lens of a human government and how human governments do these things. So here is a Patriarchs and Prophets 420. See if you get a clue from this one. 
The history of Israel was to be placed on record for the instruction and warning of coming generations. Men of all future time must see the God of heaven as an impartial ruler, in no case justifying sin. But few realize the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Boy, that's true. Few realize it. Men flatter themselves that God is too good to punish the transgressor. But in the light of the Bible, history is evident that God's, good, uh, that God's goodness and his love engage him to deal with sin as an evil fatal to the peace and happiness of the universe. An evil fatal to the peace. Is that giving you a clue? How does God run his unit? What, what, well, let me just read you some more quotes to see if this helps. I'm, because we're, we're getting short on time and I don't want to leave this hanging. And you, you know the first two. You've heard them before, so I'm going to go through them really fast. This is our age of 761. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. If God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. This is desire of ages. So it's arguing that this idea that God must punish sin is one of Satan's arguments. First select the messages, 235 is the second one you all know very well. Um, We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Okay, now putting that together, I love this one out of Patriarchs and Prophets 728. This one you may not have heard before. David had neglected the duty of punishing the crime of Amnon. And because of the unfaithfulness of the king and father and the impenitence of the son, the Lord permitted events to take their natural course and did not restrain Absalom. When parents or rulers neglect the duty of punishing iniquity, God himself will take the case in hand. His restraining power will be in a measure removed from the agencies of evil so that a train of circumstances will arise and will punish sin with sin. Isn't that profound? How does God do it? He lets go. This is what you'll find over and over again. And then, the message of the book of Jeremiah. A, that is the message of the book of Jeremiah, what we're studying. And then I want to share this one with you because I thought it just, this is out of uh, Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 185. As Paul thus approached Corinth, how striking the contrast to the close of a former journey when Saul, breathing out threats, and uh, slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, drew near to Damascus. How widely different the appearance purpose and spirit of Saul and Paul. Then he was entrusted with the sword of secular power. He was the agent of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish inquisitor, the exterminator of heretics, seeking victims to imprison, to scourge, or to stone. Filled with pride, he rode toward Damascus with servants at his command to convey his prisoners to Jerusalem. Now he journeys on foot with no outward tokens or rank of power, no officers of justice to do his bidding, the utmost that he can do to punish those who disregard his authority is to separate them from a society whose members are everywhere regarded as ignorant and degraded. So what's the most he can do? Separate them from society. If, if you're going to rebel, the, the, and if you get how love works, guys, you're in a relationship with somebody and you love this person, but this person is giving their heart for someone else. They want to leave you. They want to divorce you. They want to separate from you. 
You can, if you love them and you want to save the relationship, you can plead your case. You can present gifts. You can have envoys come on your behalf and argue your case for, for reconciliation. But if the person insists on leaving, what's the only act of love that you can take? Let them go. That is God's wrath. This is how he punishes. Because when the life giver, the source of all life, lets go, what happens to, to you when the source of life lets go? Darkness takes over pain, suffering, and death. So yes, God does punish. But his method of punishment is to allow one to reap the consequences of what unremedied sin does in the life, not an infliction from God. Yes? Well, again, I, I want to just add to that by in the Isaiah 1, um, God is saying, talking about Israel, see how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silvers become dross, your choice wine is diluted with water, your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord God Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove your impurities. I will restore your judgments. As your judges, as in the days of old, uh, and your counselors, as in the beginning. Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness and the faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. So, how do we apply this? How do we apply it today? This is a, we look at God as vengeful. You know, I have, the vengeance is mine, I will repay. So, we're like, yeah, yeah, big brother, you know. And yet, this is saying God's vengeance is something entirely different than what we understand. It's another, we understand God in a pagan way, in that way. We don't understand that God's vengeance is restoration. Yeah, so the vengeance of God is the same vengeance the doctor has on disease. If you go to a doctor and you're just ridden with, riddled with disease, if the doctor has the ability and the power, he will take vengeance on the disease. He'll get rid of the polio infection. He'll get rid of the cancer cells. He will destroy them with a, with a uh, viciousness of no mercy to that, that disease. But he's never vicious to the patient. He's never seeking to destroy the patient. And if the patient refuses to let the doctor work and provide remedy, then what does the doctor do? He lets them go. But what happens to the patient? They suffer and they die. This is the good news of Scripture. But when you view it through a judicial model, then you see that, well, if you don't let the doctor do it, then the doctor will be forced to to torture you and kill you because you wouldn't let him cure you. It makes no sense, whatever. So, yeah, so how do we apply it today? How do we apply these principles in our life when we deal with people today? I'm going to tell you, the Christian church is trapped. It's trapped in a cycle of addiction and violence. There's no difference, again, in Christian homes and addiction rates, pornography rates, spouse abuse rates, child abuse rates. Um, in, in Christian homes and non-Christian homes, the, the rates are the same. Paul says in the last day, they'll have a form of godliness but deny the power. Why? Because they have a system that teaches them a false remedy. And the system says, see, when you do, you're, you're a born sinner. There's nothing you can do to live victorious. You're going to sin. There's, don't even try not to. And when you sin, it's all legal problems. You're, you're, there's, a, there's a heavenly ledger, and you're keeping track of every bad thing you've ever done. The only way to deal with that is you've got to go, and you have to accept the, the substitute in your behalf. And if you accept the substitute in your behalf, then God will uh, put Jesus' record over top of your record. And in heaven, when it comes judicial time, well, what happens at that moment, this is called justification. God will declare you to be righteous even though you're not. 
And the reason there's no power and people suffer, it's because it's the toothbrushing analogy. You haven't been brushing your teeth, you're miserable and, you're, and, you've, got, and you've got cavities and you go to the pastor, I haven't, I haven't obeyed my parents, I've been brushing and flossing for years and I'm suffering, I'm, I'm miserable. Don't worry, there's a heavenly brother who has brushed his teeth perfectly and if you accept him, his uh, record in your behalf, then God will declare you to have perfect teeth even though you don't. You just go home believing that your teeth are perfect. That's what Christianity is teaching. Just believe you have a perfect record in heaven. Even though you don't, you're still wicked. And there's no victory here. Don't expect it. Just go home and continue to suffer, but believe in heaven you're declared to be perfect. It's a lie. It's a fraud. And this is why Christians are trapped. And, and those, those who stay in the church, there's a selection bias going on. Thinking people realize this is ridiculous and they leave the church. Many others live in fear and they stay trapped because they know God is right. They have some experience with him. They know he's true. They know he's but But they stay trapped in this fear cycle where they stay in the church, but they don't have freedom or power. And they stay as these sheep that are dominated by leaders that are power over. I've seen this over and over. What's the, what do we do? Yes, we have to present God as he is. God is waiting for a people, this time in earth's history, to stand up and experience him and his realities he constructed it, allow him to actually transform them, where they, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Survival of the fittest drive is not what drives them. They're willing to sacrifice themselves for others. They love others more than self and God more than self. There's transformational. That's in heart stuff. Real justification Abraham's natural heart didn't trust God. Our hearts are an enmity to God. Abraham trusted God and was recognized as just a, or set right. His heart had been reoriented to a trust relationship. It, his heart was now set right. That's being justified. And once the heart's set right and you trust him, then you, it's like trusting your doctor. You follow his prescription. You spend time with him. You open the heart to him. The spirit comes in and there's transformation that happens, but only after the heart's set right. It's not legal. This whole legal thing built on a false premise of, of the human law construct has trapped people into a system where they claim legal victory and innocence when they have no power in their lives. So I think it's time we, we present a message where people start actually changing their expectations in their relationship with God. So faith in Hebrews is our understanding of things hoped for. Understanding has two meanings. One, our comprehension and understanding but there's another meaning to that you and i have an understanding we have an agreement faith is our understanding or agreement with god that i agree that he is great and he is righteous and he is trustworthy so i trust him and let him work in my life that's my faith a gracious heavenly father you are worthy of our trust you have gone to infinite lengths to reveal the truth to us and to provide what we need a new nature through jesus christ who took our place to achieve a victory over this infection of fear and selfishness, what is known as sin that we could never achieve. We ask now that your spirit will come and, and help us discern the truth, purge the lies and misunderstandings from our minds, win us back to this trust, set our hearts right with you. And in that right relationship, Lord, and teach us how to participate in your, in your methods and purposes to fulfill your purposes on earth for our lives and, and to be a, a um, agency for you in this world that the world can be lighted and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.